Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. How is everybody tonight? Hey, how was your day today at River Valley Ranch? Incredible. So we've been talking here about beauty from ashes, this idea that God delights in, he loves it, he, he makes us his personal project, that he actually has a good time in the mess of our story because he can see not only who we've been, not only who we are, but who we could become with his help and in his grace. And so there's this beautiful idea, and it really is in the very heart of scripture, we see it over and over and over again, dramatized in so many different ways illustrated in so many different stories, that, that God delights in the transformation, in the redemption, in the recreation, in the reclamation of you and I, his prized creation, that he loves this, that we were created good in the image of God, in the imago Dei, male and female, unique expressions of God's very creative essence, that in some way, shape, and form, you and I reflect back to this world the glory and design of our creator, that when we look into the face of our neighbor, we see some beautiful, unique aspect of the very essence of God. And this is remarkable, and I think that we talked last night about how much fun God has in this process, that he delights in it, he loves it, he thinks it's great. And our guide for this week is going to be the Apostle John, because I love John, and um, I just, I like him. That's all. No, really, John is this guy, and this, this is John's perspective. John wrote his gospel in his old age, and he wrote it from the standpoint of, like, I am the last living eyewitness to the Jesus event. And this is what he said he wanted to do. He said he was going to paint portraits of his friend Jesus so future generations could get to know him. And this is something I'm passionate about because I feel like in our culture today, it is so easy to lose sight of the Jesus of the Gospels. Because what we have instead are like thousands and thousands of cultural caricatures. These things, you guys know what a caricature is, right? Like you go to like the you go to like King's Dominion or where do you guys go up here Hershey Park, you guys go to Hershey Park, In King's Dominion Hershey Park one of these places. You guys ever been to who's been to Cedar Point? Anybody been to Cedar Point? Okay, now there. Listen, those are the adults. The rest of you children who think you've ridden roller coasters before, talk to the adults from Cedar Point, right? With those that's where the grown-ups ride rides. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I peed my pants at Cedar Point. So you screamed a little bit at King's Dominion. That was great. Anyway, no. Um, <laughs> anyway, you go to these places and they have these booths there, right? And they, they, they look at your picture or your likeness and they draw you a caricature. It's this idea of like some exaggerated expression of some aspect of who you are. And it might be representative of something about you, but like, you know, I mean, so they made a caricature of me. It would basically look like, um, I don't know, which of the Avengers do I most resemble? Um, oh, 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 that was good. That was, that was, that was actually a really quality burn. I was going to feel offended, but that's actually so good. We're just going to let that ride. Thanos is perfect. Thank you. It's the chin, right? It's, oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So here, here's the issue with Jesus. He's lost, man. 
we, we have instead of the biblical Jesus these cultural caricatures, so we're going to reclaim that. So we started in John 1. We're going to go forward in time to John 2. I'm going to skip over just for tonight one of my favorite stories when Jesus went to a wedding at a little place called Cana. Um, and we're not going to go there right now. We're going to go instead just past that. And Jesus, now here's what I want you to see. The way that John's arranged these, okay, super important. John has every story he could ever have. Matter of fact, we have, we have reason to believe John knows of the synoptic tradition. So John probably knows of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts. He's the last gospel written, and he might even have them. Like he might actually, in his presence, he has his other documents. So sometimes what John does is he gets a little creative with timelines, and he does it in a way to paint a picture of Jesus for us. And so he's, he's doing something theological here. And so especially when he departs from their timeline. In other words, if John tells a story in a different way than they told the story, you have to ask yourself the question, why is he telling us this this way? So we have here an event, and maybe you're the kind of person that has knows this. We have here an event that's actually in all four Gospels, and it's one of only a handful of stories that are in all four Gospels, but John's comes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other three guys, the other three evangelists, have it near the end of Jesus' ministry. So here's the question I want you to ask. Don't get caught up with, wait a second, whose, whose version is right, theirs or theirs? Hey, John has moved this on purpose to make a point. So hear his point. His point is this. He's framing the entire ministry of Jesus by holding two events in contrast with each other. And we'll talk about the first event tomorrow night, but this second event is equally as important. So the, the first event is when Jesus shows up at a party and he keeps the party going by turning water into wine. That wasn't in your Sunday school class, Okay. If it was, it was some you know, different version of that, right? Party time Jesus, not a very common cultural caricature. You hear what I'm saying? Okay, that's not really there. The second event is Jesus goes to church. Now, not church. They didn't have church then because church wasn't created yet. But, but he shows up at the temple. And, and where this party time crowd recognized the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus was, now we have a religious crowd. And what will Jesus do? He shows up at the party. He shows up at the feast. Water into wine. Regenerative miracle. Amazing thing. He now shows up in this place of piety. This place where people are supposed to come and connect with God. And listen to how John paints this picture because in the contrast is a remarkable truth we can't afford to miss. Here it goes. Ready? When it was about time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, what's happened here is they've taken this place, a sacred space, where people are supposed to come and, and, and draw near to God. And the exact location of where this money changing is happening is in a place called the Gentile Court. It is the only place in the temple where outsiders who are seeking Yahweh, the one true God, can come. And what they've done is they've taken the space for outsiders to, to, to seek him spiritually and they've converted it into a place where for the convenience of insiders, we're now doing something different there. And it's a practice, it's a little bit exploitative and it's a little bit like, you know, everything that's wrong with religion. You know what I'm talking about? 
Now, I don't know where you go to church, but I'm going to assume you guys all go to great churches. Because, you know, I, I see your youth leaders, they brought you here, they're doing good stuff, okay? But, like, occasionally, you ever see somebody and they speak for Jesus, like, on behalf of the world, and you want to be like, hey, uh, I'm pretty sure he has that wrong. You know what I'm talking about? We, we, we heard this guy when we were pastoring in Florida, and this is a true story, and um, he did the same message every single year, and we heard it because he was on, the, on, on television all the time, and he would do something like this. He would do this whole thing where it was like, send me money, and I'll make sure you get blessed. You, 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 know, the, you know the game? It's like a con, right? And this is what he would say. This is what he would say, and he was really good. He was slick. His one message was, how to get more in 2004. And he would say this, the size of your bill will be the size of your blessing. You know what I'm talking about? And you just, you're like, oh, Lord Jesus, I know you don't do the lightning trick very often. But if there was ever a time for holy wrath, pluck that guy out of the story, okay? Just zap him, just wham. So he did how to get more in 2004, how to get mine in 2009, how to touch heaven in 2011. I mean, it was the same message every year. I can't even remember his rhymes for 2005, 6, 7. I don't, I don't remember them all. But they were all crazy. They were, they were there. And this is what's happening here is there's, there's sort of this like we've turned this into this exploitative thing. People are coming to seek God and they're not finding it. And so we're going to see a side of Jesus that, again, when I was growing up in church, we did this thing called flannel graph. You guys ever seen a flannel graph before? Okay, so pre-screens, no iPads, no nothing. They used to take little cutouts of Bible characters out of felt, and they'd put them on a board. Like, here's Jesus with his little stick, and he'd be like, whoosh, slap, slap on the board. And then, like, here's, you know, he's coming to the temple, he put it, whoosh, it was like color grams. You guys remember uh, Shrinky Dinks or color grams? Come on, 90s kids. Somebody help me out, youth leaders. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are all like, I was born in 20, 2005. Anyway, um, this never came up in flannel graph. Listen to what Jesus does. He sees them exchanging money, and he gets ticked off. Now, your Jesus, I don't know if your Jesus is too safe for this, but listen to what this Jesus does. So this Jesus, the biblical one, John's friend, he made a whip out of cords. When have you ever seen Indiana Jones Jesus? Okay, this is like legit. He made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is like a tornado of righteous fury. This wasn't cute. This wasn't polite. This wasn't church appropriate. This wasn't buttoned up or pious. This was a display of raw anger and emotion. This is something that that it would make us very uncomfortable. And that's his point. Wow. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples, you imagine being one of the disciples at this point? You ever have that moment where your parents do something crazy and you want to be like, they're not, I don't know who these people are. I don't know what, like, I, I, I one time listened to my dad argue with a police officer, and I was in the car, and I couldn't do anything about it. I just wanted to be like, officer, I just want to tell you I'm adopted. 
I don't know who this guy is. Another time we were at this restaurant, and this is a story too. We were at this restaurant, and there was, there was somebody being prejudiced to, to another customer in the restaurant. And they, they, they weren't giving them coffee. And they were making them feel unwelcome. And we're watching it, and my mom is saying to my dad, don't get involved, don't get involved. My dad's getting angrier and angrier. I know what's going to happen. And so my dad, at, at some point, got up. He was just ticked off. He couldn't handle this injustice. And he just got up. He went back into the kitchen at this restaurant. And you heard some plates hit the floor. And then my dad came out with the coffee pot and walked over to the table and poured him coffee. Can I take your order? Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> And the people, the people at the restaurant were like, what's going on? And I'm like, at one part, I'm like, I'm so proud of my dad. The other part of me is like, I don't know who he is right now, okay? Like, what is about to happen? This is getting controversial. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. His disciples, remember what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then responded to him, what are you doing? You can't. This is inappropriate. Get back in your box. Stop defying our expectations. You are out of line right now. You are not doing what we expect you to do. And this is the problem with Jesus when he gets out of the box. He, he yeah. Jesus, stop. What sign can you show? Prove, validate this. Show us what, what authority do you have to do this? What are you doing? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now they're all confused. What's he talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? And of course, now John tells us the temple he had spoken of was his body. And this is the way John's gospel works. The way John's gospel works is, for episode after episode, Jesus does something shocking, and everybody misunderstands what he did. And then John tells us, in this little aside, and this is what was really going on. They're called Johannine misunderstandings. It's the pattern of his gospel. He shows Jesus doing something controversial, and then nobody gets it, and then John goes off and explains it. And he's saying, this is pointing to the resurrection someday. Here's what I'm getting at, because this is, this is what I want you to get. God loves you. He loves you, but he loves you so much, he can't let you stay as you are. He needs to invite you into a relationship with him, and that relationship will undoubtedly, inevitably lead to your transformation. It will allow the rough edges in you, the darkness in you, the sin, the rebellion, these things inside of you that are self-destructive, these tendencies you have to go your own way and to do the thing that will ultimately bring chaos into the human story, and he has to blunt those edges off, and he has to lead you back into this life-giving position of surrender to him. We don't like that. What we want is a tame, benevolent, therapeutic deity who wants to help me achieve my dreams and, and, and get my life goals. You, you know what I'm talking about. Your generation's got this thing with like your digital persona, your, your carefully crafted exterior digital persona. You have like the real you, you know, who does all kinds of goofy stuff. Then you have this curated you that you're like, here I am. Hashtag blessed. Just out here loving people, living my best life today. And we're so good at impression management. We're so good at keeping the facade. But Jesus wants it real. He wants it authentic. He wants to find the real you and to help that real you come alive in him. And what we'll see in John's gospel over and over and over again is that Jesus isn't safe. 
He's not controllable. He's not tame. He's not put in a box. He's not easily confined. He's not somebody that's going to just box in with your expectations and just do what you expect him to do. And I know in our culture, we have this weird amalgamation of like self-help guru, Oprah, you know, I don't know, Kanye somehow gets mixed into Jesus anymore. And it's all this goofy thing. And here's the deal though. He doesn't want to be those things. Jesus wants to be as he is. And it's risky and it's tough. So if you're taking notes, number one, your freedom starts with Jesus unleashed. Your freedom starts with Jesus unleashed. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Throw your paradigm away. Let God out of the box. Stop putting him inside of your parameters. Stop, stop limiting him with the limits of your imagination. Stop assuming that you know what Jesus is and what Jesus would do. There was a movement when I was a teenager and everybody wore these little bracelets and it, was, it would say WWJD. And I, I thought they were missing a lot of um, things because the WWJD was what would Jesus do? And we all wore these little bracelets. It kind of became a cultural joke. What would Jesus do? And everybody talking about it. And I, I thought it should be like DKY J W E W W J D. Do you know Jesus well enough to know what Jesus would do? Do you know Jesus well enough to know what Jesus would do? Because here's the thing you might not. You might think you know, but you got to read the book. You got to see what's in there because I'll tell you, time after time after time, what you find in the gospel stories are people who thought they knew what to expect from Jesus came and they encountered Jesus and they realized wait a second. He's not who I thought he was. Jesus' 12 closest friends didn't get it all the way to the end. All the way to the end. They're at the Last Supper, and Jesus stands up and says, Hey, I just want to tell you guys, I'm going to suffer and die for the sins of the world in the morning. It's going to be awful. And they're saying, Hey, it's just that's cool, but um, we're all talking. And when you get in your kingdom... We're just sort of wondering which of us is the most important. And he's like, I just washed your feet. I just did the bread and the wine. I just, I'm trying to tell you in all these ways that my kingdom is not like you think it is. This is not the beginning of a revolution the way you're imagining it. This is not something that we're going to overthrow Rome through military might. We're not drawing swords in a man. As a matter of fact, Peter, they get in the garden and Peter's like, here it goes. The revolution begins and he draws his sword and Jesus is like, put that away. Have you been paying attention? The people that walk with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, all day and all night, didn't know what he was about, and they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. I'm just saying, maybe you've missed it a little bit. So pay attention. You've got to let Jesus off the leash. Your freedom requires Jesus to be Jesus. And, and, and then here's, here's the next thing. I mean, this is, this is huge. This is really big. Let Jesus off the leash. Let him be unchained. And then number two, this is your freedom unleashed. This is where it comes from. This is, this is where it gets real. Now, immediately after this, Jesus cleanses the temple. And it's this crazy thing. John gives us this next story, and this is where I want you guys to hear this. This man, his name is Nicodemus. Great story. 
Great story because we get Nicodemus, his entire faith journey throughout the Gospel of John. We meet him here in chapter 3, and he's one of the religious elite. He's one of the people in the Jewish ruling council. He has every reason to, to be the guy who should know what's going on. And he sees Jesus, and it blows his paradigm up. And he has to rethink everything he thought he knew about God. Wait a second now. I thought it was this, but now it might be that. And so he comes to Jesus at night, uh, under the cover of night, in secret. And they start this conversation. And, and here's what he does. He does what so many of us will do. He keeps his conversation with God theoretical. But let's talk about ideas about God. And Jesus keeps pushing him out of the theoretical and into the actual. He keeps saying, well, okay, so you have these ideas, that's fine. What about you and your heart? And he's like, well, but I, this, what you're saying is confusing. And Jesus says this to him, the wind blows where the wind wants to blow. In other words, don't put me in your box, man. Don't, don't put the spirit in your little box. I'm here to blow up your paradigm. I'm here to completely, listen, we've done so much in our culture to make Jesus just a good moral teacher, but here's the problem. The world doesn't need a good moral teacher. We needed a dissident. We needed a revolutionary. We needed somebody who was going to come and blow up the existing paradigms of religion and social justice, who was going to lead us to a greater level of humanity, who was going to take this chasm between us and God, this distance, that we've done all these silly things to try and cross and he was going to bridge it in this one beautiful powerful irreconcilable way where we have now this awesome unity where there used to be division this, this awesome nearness where there used to be distance jesus needed to be a revolutionary voice he had to blow the whole thing up and start over this is like recreation i'm a potter you guys didn't know didn't know that about me um that means i, I make Pottery on a wheel, wet dirt, spins around. I can make something beautiful out of it. And here's what happens quite often. It's actually, one of the biblical prophets, his name is Jeremiah, tells the same story. He says, I went down to the potter's house, and I watched the potter at work, and the thing he was working on became marred under his hands. And so he started again. And sometimes when you're working on a piece of, of, of clay, you mess it up. You make a mistake or, or something else goes wrong. Maybe there's something in the clay itself, some imperfection, some air bubble that made it through the wedging process. And, and it causes it to go off center. And what you actually have to do is you cut it off the board and you throw it in this barrel called a slip barrel. And it gets reduced down into its composite components and then you end up reclaiming the clay later and you start completely over again. I think sometimes we think that, that Jesus could just show up in this world and be like, hey, uh, knock it off, love each other. And we were ready as humanity to be like, well, thank you. That's all I needed was a, a reminder to be kind. I'll get on that right away. See, the issue is we have to become a new creation. We have to become a new creature. We have to realize our redemptive potential. And he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, and they never get as far as, as Nicodemus. He's, he's curious, but he's still secret. And here's what I want you to imagine. Do this for me. Study Nicodemus. Look at every time his name is mentioned throughout John's gospel. His journey goes something like this. He starts and he's curious, and then he kind of becomes conflicted. 
And then at the very end of the story, he gets to clarity. But at first, he's curious. He comes at night. He's just being secret. And this is what I think is happening. He's not ready for Jesus to be as he is. He's hoping for someone tame and manageable. It's too risky. It's too out there. Jesus is too revolutionary. He's too extreme. Great author named C.S. Lewis in his theological masterpiece, The Chronicles of Narnia. You got Narnia fans in the house? Oh, see, now this is good. You guys... You don't know about shrinky dinks or color forms, but at least you know how good, what good books are. Okay, that's good. But listen, Susan is like Nicodemus. Susan is like this silly, conceited person who is more interested in lipstick and nylons and invitations than Narnia, right? At the end, at the very end of the story, she wants Aslan to be more safe than he is, and he unsettles her. He makes her feel uncomfortable, and so she keeps being like, I'm kind of afraid of this lion, and you know, Mr. Beaver is like, oh, you think he's, a, he's not a tame lion, right? But he's good, but he's good. See, Jesus... He will blow up your paradigm. He will completely reshape your dreams. He will change your story, but you won't regret it. It's not safe. It's not manageable, but it's right, and it's good. And Nicodemus comes at night in curiosity, but he just doesn't, he's not ready for Jesus to be as he is, and then he ends up in this weird stage of confusion. Listen to me on this. Nicodemus is on the Jewish ruling council which means that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that when Jesus is arrested and tried, Nicodemus is in the room. It means when they dig up some trumped-up charges and they slap him on Jesus and they abuse him and they torture him and they assault him, Nicodemus is there. He's present for these things. He leaves the comfort of his bed late one night to attend this session of the Sanhedrin where they try Jesus in front of Caiaphas and Annas. He's there. Think about what happens between Jesus and Nicodemus during these moments. Think about this now. They're torturing Jesus. If there was ever a time where Jesus needed a real friend, and in the crowd he has like this secret disciple, this guy, at some point in the story, Jesus is doing controversial things, and the Jewish leaders are uncomfortable with it. And they're like, man, we got to stop this guy. And Nicodemus, this is what he does. He speaks up. He finds the courage to draw a line in the dirt, and he says, well, shouldn't we at least hear him out first? And they ridicule him, and so he backs down. He just kind of, I'm going to go back and be a secret disciple. Now they arrest Jesus, and they're beating him and torturing him, and interrogating him, and I, in my imagination, this isn't in the text, but in my imagination, Jesus keeps looking at his buddy Nick in the crowd. Where are you now, man? You still want to be a secret? Keep me to yourself? I don't know what Nicodemus is waiting for. Is he waiting for Jesus to call in legions of angels? Is he waiting for the Messiah to rise up and lead a revolution? Is he waiting for someone more like David, some deliverer like Elijah or Moses? I don't know. I don't know if his box isn't really ready yet. He can't lift the box, but he, he still can't handle Jesus as he is. He wants to conform Jesus to the way he wants him to be, but Jesus won't do that. He just stands there in resolute, courageous, unfailing love 
suffering their abuse without answer. And there is a moment where Nicodemus is like, you know what? I'm done with secrecy. I'm done with this thing. I'm, I'm in. I'm with that guy. Uh, and he crosses the line in such a courageous and dramatic way. And this is what I think is so beautiful about Nicodemus. When he steps across the line, the moment he does it, it's like he has nothing to gain from it. And it's when Jesus dies on the cross. Something happened in him. Something broke in him. There's this moment in their midnight secretive conversation in chapter 3 where Jesus references being lifted up. When the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, he says. Maybe it's that thing. Maybe Nicodemus looks at Jesus dying on the cross. Maybe Nicodemus, he, he suffered in silence. He watched as, as Jesus endured all their torture, endured all their scorn. And then when he finally sees Jesus lifted up and he, and he recognizes what I'm looking at is love personified. I thought I knew what it was before, but now I see that it's that. And I'm with him. And this is what he does. They pull the body down, and normally the body of, 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 of a crucified criminal would be thrown into this trash heap called Guyana outside the city gates. It used to be discarded like garbage. And Nicodemus and his buddy Joe, Nick and Joe, Joseph of Arimathea, they go and they, they claim the body of Jesus, and they say, no, we, we want that. And they bury him, in a wealthy man's tomb. Listen to me. Because he went from secrecy and, and stepped across that line, this is what prepared everything for the event of the resurrection. Without his moment in that story, it's so instrumental. This is part of the unfolding plan of redemption. It's part of the way that, that God shows up in our story and does something beautiful because he finally said, okay, I'm there, I'm with you. I don't know where you are right now. I don't know what you're processing. I don't know where you are in your faith, but I, I guarantee in a room this big, there are some of you and you have kind of this Nicodemus-shaped relationship with Jesus. It's sort of this like private Sunday thing that you got going on. It's like, well, maybe, you know, once a, once a quarter I show up at church and you kind of do my Jesus thing, but I got to keep it kind of private. And I'm really into this whole like, you know, public persona thing. And you're hoping all the time to keep this Jesus in his little box. Like, hey, you can have this part of my life, but not the rest of it. Like, I'll give you what is confined in this little box. And here's what I want to tell you. You will not be free until you unchain him in your heart. You will not be free. You will not be free. You've got to unchain him to be unleashed. You've got to let him be God. You've got to let his glory, his intensity, his vastness, the, the, the things about him that make you most uncomfortable, those are the very things you need to press into. That's, that's the part of the story you've got to embrace. You've got to find your courage to step across the line and say, God, I'll take you as you are. Even though it makes me feel small, I will let you be big. I'll let you be wondrous. I'll let you be glorious. I'll let you be king of everything. He's not safe, but he's good. But he's very, very good. That's where your freedom comes from. Let's pray.
Master, we love who you are. Lord Jesus, the cleanser of temples, the one who speaks up for spiritual seekers, the one who demands authenticity in our worship, the one who resists injustice, the one who rises up on behalf of the voiceless, the one who is untamable, uncontrollable, unpredictable, wild in your love for us, unexplainable in your passion for who we could be. Be king. Be who you are. Let us not diminish you with the limits of our imagination. Let us not try and control you with the boundaries of our expectations. Let us allow you to be who you are. Be wild, Lord Jesus. Be good. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Live After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.